The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. It's finally April, and although the beginning of this year has seemed like a long April Fool's joke, (laughs) it's not. Uh, But you know, I love this time of year. This time of year is great. The sun comes out, and it's nice weather. Well, in most of the country, it's nice weather. Around here, that just means it gets hot and the mosquitoes come out. But uh, but for for the most part, it's nice, and uh, I can get out and play some golf in the evenings or whatnot as... As you heard Daniel say on Wednesday, like that's my passion. I, I'm horrible at golf, but I love to play. Um, but, uh, but it's a nice time of year, but also this time of year, we come together uh, to celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's the time of year that we celebrate Easter together. Easter has got to be my, the most favorite holiday of mine. If I had to choose one, and I had to do without the others, Easter would be the one. I love everything about Easter. I love it. But really, we should celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every day of our lives. Amen? As Paul said, if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, then we wouldn't have a faith at all to have. The resurrection is pivotal to, uh, to our faith. Uh, and, and, we, and we celebrate this week, this Passion Week, right, with Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And we remember uh, what Jesus did for us during that week. This year, uh, it's a little different, to say the least, amen, between uh, coronavirus and quarantine. Uh, things, things are looking a little different this year. Things are going to look a little different for the rest of the year. They've, like, canceled baseball and football is going to get canceled probably and there's no golf on TV. Like it, the rest of the year is probably going to look a little different. One of the things that I'm sure we'll still have for this year is this is an election year. All right. Uh, this year is the fourth year to where we're going to vote for a new president in our country. And you know how much I love Easter. Well, I about that much. I hate election year. <laughs> I, I can't stand election year. Uh, it, you know, it's just nauseating between the smear campaigns and you know this guy says something about that guy and uh and our guy is going to be better than the next guy and every four years we have this savior who's going to come in and who's going to do something different than the other guy did right is that usually how the election works every four years we're fed up with the guy who was in there and so we we get a different guy to come in and then he's no better and really for us, uh, the blue collar folk, nothing ever changes. <laughs> it all stays the same. And uh, and I hate it. I hate, you know, obviously, don't get me wrong. I love our country. I, I am patriotic. I love being in the United States of America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I promise you that. It just becomes a little uh, daunting sometimes that we put our faith and our trust in things that will never bring about anything for us. That's what election year does. We, it, it brings about this faith and trust in us that uh, that we have in, in 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 thinking that this new savior is going to do something different. And for the most part, people buy into whatever their favorite candidate has to say, right? That the politician coming in is going to fix it all. How many times have you heard that, right? If you've been alive as long as Charlie has, you've seen a lot of presidents come through, and that's a lot of promises. That's a lot of failed promises, uh, and, and that's usually the way we go. We'll follow our favorite candidate, and we think he's going to make everything right. Now, this is kind of having a reverse savior complex. I had to look that word up, so you might have to as well. But a savior complex is where you need to save somebody all the time. A reverse savior complex is where you need someone to save you all the time. And this is how we get every four years, is that we have this reverse savior complex. We have somebody who we need it to save us and, and to make everything better and to fix everything. People feel the need to be saved from hardships and by the government taking care of them. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I'm not trying to bash our government or I'm not trying to bash our leaders. I just think sometimes we place our faith and trust in the wrong things. 
a, a leader, a political leader is not going to fix the problem that we have. And I'm not talking about as Americans. I'm talking about people. Daniel said it last week, right? Sin is the disease and Jesus is the answer to that disease. That's what's going to fix our problems. Now, you see, over 2,000 years ago in a little spot in the world called Jerusalem, they were having the same issues. Okay, they were having the same issues. The nation of Israel had not been a nation uh, since like 605 BC at this time. Uh, they, they were first overthrown by the Babylonian government as judgment from God. And then uh, many other nations after that came and ruled over them. And when we get to our part in John, it's the Roman government now that has rule over them. So from like 605 until 1948, uh, there was no nation of Israel, okay? They were overrun. They were being ruled at this time by Rome. And so you can imagine uh, where the people, that these people were ready to be set free from a government that was ruling over them, right? We saw that in the American Revolution, that there was this tyrant, they said, 3,000 miles away that they did not want ruling over them, and they revolted. And this is exactly where Israel was, the people of Israel. They were ready to revolt. They were ready for government to be established that would fix all of their problems. Now, government ran a little bit differently back then than it does today. But people in Jerusalem were anxiously awaiting a savior that would save them from the hardships that were going on in their life. They were waiting for it. They were yearning for this savior, a savior that God himself had promised them. That God himself had promised them. Look at Micah 5.2. It says, Bethlehem, uh, Ephrathah, you are, a, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. Uh, for me, His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Just talking about Jesus. That Jesus has always been and that he was going to come and be a savior for them. And that's where we find ourselves in our text, Right? Here's these people, they're anxious, they're waiting for a savior. They know they have a promised savior from God to come. And, and, and there's this buzz going on. And so that's where we pick up in the book of John. Let's read John 12, 12. The next day, when the large crowd had come to the festival and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had, had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, there is a whole lot of theological implications wrapped up in what we just read here. And I'm going to do my best to get to most of that uh, because there's a lot of it and then still save some time for application on the back end. So if you can hang with me, it's going to be kind of front heavy. There's a lot of theology here. There's a lot that I'm not going to be able to get to. But, uh, but there's some things we need to see here. And if you'll just hang with me, we'll get to some really good application in the end. So allow me to set the scene of what's going on in the passage here because we're like dropped into this narrative. Jesus, obviously is God's Messiah. Amen. We know that. We know that because we have his word. We have his word that we can look back on and we have the ability of hindsight, right? We can read Daniel. We can read Isaiah. We can read Jeremiah. And then we can see these things fulfilled through Jesus in the New Testament, right? But it was different. It was different in the days that Jesus walked the earth, okay? They were waiting and expecting for God's Messiah for a long time, for a long time. Remember, it had already been over 600 years since they were overtaken by the Babylonians, and God had promised them a Savior that had not come yet. Can you imagine waiting 600 years for something? I don't even know my grandparents' grandparents. Like, I don't, you know, one time I tried to do the ancestry thing, but then it wanted money, so I quit. But, uh, but uh, you know, that's not that long ago. Like 80, 90 years ago, I don't know my lineage that far back. Can you imagine waiting and expecting for this king that God had promised for over 600 years? Wouldn't it kind of seem like it does today with us waiting for the second coming? Like, oh, maybe it's not going to happen in my lifetime. 
Is it ever going to happen? Sometimes we start to think. And this is how they were. They were waiting for this long time for this Messiah to come. Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. It's the same thing as Christ in Greek. They mean the same exact thing, anointed one. This Savior was going to be the anointed one of God, the one and only perfect sacrifice that was going to rule over the nation and was going to be a better king than David, says the Bible. This Savior, uh, and identifying this new anointed king would not be as easy as it sounds. Identifying the new Savior wasn't going to be as easy as it sounds because there had been false messiahs in the past. There had been people to come through and to say, I am God's anointed one and fail, right? Acts chapter 5 tells us about Thaddeus and Judah the Galilean who tried to claim messiahship. Okay, these are actual people in history who came through and who claimed to be Messiah. And uh, Acts tells us that they had gathered this large following of thousands of people and had tried to revolt against Rome and failed. Okay, first off, God's Messiah will not fail, right? And so you know if you're following somebody who fails, then you've got a problem here. So it was, it's kind of tough, right? You needed these identifiers. And for the people in Jesus' day, it would have been a mystery, and they would have needed to see some right signs from Scripture to see that this was actually God's chosen anointed one. For instance, the Messiah would be a Hebrew man, as uh, told in Isaiah 9-6. He would be Hebrew. He would be Jewish. So, you know, th there wasn't going to be like this uh, English <laughs> Messiah come through because then that wouldn't be scriptural, okay? Uh, he was going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 says. He was going to be born of a virgin, Isaiah says, Isaiah 7, 14. He was going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110:4. These are all identifiers, okay? He would suffer before entering his glory, as Isaiah 53 says. So Jesus was the only one to ever meet every single one of the qualifications that were given through Old Testament prophecy. God had given the indicators. God had given the signs to say, when you see all of these things come together, right? Because there was obviously Hebrew people. There was obviously people born in Jerusalem in that day, or Bethlehem, sorry. There was obviously, now there weren't any born of a virgin, but when you see all the signs come together, that's when you know you have the Messiah. And by the time we get to John 12, okay, because Jesus met all these requirements, by the time we get to John 12, there's this buzz going around that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed that Messiah. All right, you got to remember, he's been doing ministry for three years now, and he's been healing the sick. He's been raising people from the dead. He's been overturning tables in the temple. Okay, he knows more than the known scholars. He knows more than the religious leaders. Jesus was this Messiah. And by this point in scripture, the people are buzzing. There is a large buzz going around thinking this could be it. This could be the one that God is, is sending. And, uh, and, so, and so we see Jesus riding on this donkey as described in Zechariah 9.9, keeping true to prophecy. Now remember, Jesus does this on purpose, okay? He rides in on this donkey on purpose to show that he's keeping with prophecy. Before this moment, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. This is, Jesus's, uh, this is Jesus' public declaration as coming out as the Messiah of God on Palm Sunday. He's coming into Jerusalem, and before that moment, he had kept it silent. He had kept it a secret, his, his identity as Messiah. You, you see, it, it, was, it was not to be let out yet, right? If you remember in Mark 1, uh, 24 and 25, when a demon proclaimed him to be the Holy One, you remember that? And, uh, and he told him to be quiet. When he healed people, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Uh, even in Mark 5, 3, when he raised Jairus's... Uh, 543, I'm sorry, when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he gave them strict orders that they should tell no one about it. When the disciples gained insight into his identity uh, about being Messiah, Jesus told them to tell no one. Jesus knew and understood that it was at this right time and at this right moment when he was going to declare himself God's anointed one. Now, this is a week before he's killed on the cross and resurrected. A week. 
three years, three and a half years, he's got this ministry on earth and people know it. They see it with their eyes that he meets all of the qualifications to be God's Messiah. And he's kept it a secret until now, until this one Sunday, this triumphal entry, as they call it. He comes riding in on this donkey for all the world to see that he's God's Messiah. See, it was the perfect moment because they were in town for the Passover and there would have been an estimated million people there gathering in Jerusalem for this Passover. So the scene is set. The scene is set. Here comes Jesus and he tells his disciples, go get this donkey. You'll find it here and there. They go. You read this in all four of the Gospels. Jesus goes, gets on the donkey. And as he's coming in to Jerusalem, he's riding in and there's people all around him. They're, they're lining up and they're laying palm branches and they're laying their coats on, on the floor and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us, Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, King of Israel. They're shouting, they're yelling, they're very excited because they have their long-awaited king and they're identifying Jesus as being that Messiah. It's an exciting day for them. And they're yelling and they're all around him and they're electrified by the very presence of the one who would be crowned king of Israel. Now, this is a big deal, right? This is like uh, when you find out who's going to be president and your party won. It's a pretty big deal, right? They have all these rallies and everybody's throwing confetti and stuff. It's just like that. But there's a million people there. And they're all cheering them on. They're all, and at one point, and I didn't have to hear my notes, but at one point, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they get really upset. And they tell Jesus, tell them to shut up, pretty much. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, yeah, you can tell them to be quiet all you want, but if they don't proclaim me, the rocks will cry out. This was the moment that Jesus was coming out and identifying himself as God's chosen Messiah. This long-awaited this long overdue savior in their eyes, in the people's eyes. But you see, this wasn't the first time that they tried to crown Jesus the Messiah. We read uh, the crowds proclaiming him as king in John 6, 14 and 15, after the feeding of the 5,000. This is just six chapters before our text. John 6, 14 and 15, it says, when the people saw the sign he had done, remember he fed these 5,000 people with uh, the two fish and the five loaves, uh, it says, when the people saw that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. <clears throat> it was undoubtable. It was undoubtable that Jesus had all of the qualifications and he even had the miracles to authenticate it. He had every qualification that he was God's Messiah. And then on top of that, after raising Lazarus from the dead, it really set things off in people's minds. It solidified them that this was God's man. Remember, he couldn't go and heal Lazarus and, and he was sad about that. And when he came and he, and, he, and, he, and he said, Lazarus, come forth and he came out of the grave, that moment solidified with people, this is God's man. So much so that the chief priests and the Pharisees had placed an arrest warrant on Jesus. They wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. The religious leaders at the time were very afraid that Jesus, if he indeed was the actual Messiah, that he was going to disrupt their political, religious status and standard that they had in that day. And they didn't want that. So they put an arrest warrant out and said, if anybody sees Jesus then he's to be arrested immediately, right? So there was this plot to get rid of him, to get rid of this problem. And, and now if you can imagine, there's these people who had seen Jesus feed these 5,000. He had brought Lazarus back to life and there's all this energy and it's electrified and there's all this tension, right? It's almost like a dramatic movie. There's all this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and, and you could cut the tension with a knife and the people knew that all this was going to come over to a boiling point right because Jesus was going to make it to Passover and everybody's at Passover and so there's this buzz going on right is Jesus coming it was it was an anticipated drama look at John 11 55 and 56 
John 11, 55 and 56, it says, Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? There was this buzz like, hey, Jesus isn't coming, is he? Because he knows, he knows that these religious leaders, got, they got this arrest warrant out for him. There's no way he's going to show his face here because the second that he does, he's going to get arrested and they want to kill him. And there was all this hype and there was all this anticipation over Jesus who was to be expect, the next expected king of the Jews. They were ready. But these people were only ready and they were only caught up in all the benefits that King Jesus would offer them. They weren't ready for Jesus to be king of their heart. They were ready to enjoy all the benefits that a king of Israel would bring to them. What, what are these benefits? Freedom from Rome. They wouldn't have to be under the thumb of Rome anymore. Freedom from high taxes. Uh, in that day, there were taxes to pay, but you had kick-ups. It's like these uh, triangle schemes these days, but back then, right? You had a taxpayer to pay, and then the guy had that guy under him, and the guy had that guy under him. And so when you finally had to pay your taxes, you had to pay five kick-ups, all right? There were high taxes to be paid. The ability to be a nation of power, that, that's what would come with their next king. And the ability to be a people of their own. They were ready, and they were expecting this king that would benefit them all these things. You see... People were really to follow, they were ready to follow someone who they believed would benefit them the most. It wasn't about Jesus being God's man. It was about what Jesus could benefit them as becoming the next king of the Jews. How do we know this? Well, because they followed the other so-called messiahs too. The other so-called messiahs had big followings. 4,000 people was written down at one point. 4,000 people and they all died. Okay? So they're willing and ready to follow this person who they think is going to be the next king of the Jews. And here was Jesus marching into what would eventually be his death, people cheering him on all the way into Jerusalem, and just a few days later they would be cheering something entirely different, wouldn't they? They'd be cheering, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead. Crucify him, right? What'd they tell Pilate? If he said, crucify him, this is your king. And they said, no, we have a king and that's Caesar. They went against their own beliefs and said, no, kill him. We'll deal with the consequences. To one point, they actually said, let his blood be on our hands. Why the change from the people and why so fast? Why one moment are they lining the streets with palm branches and with coats and yelling, Hosanna, our Savior, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, King of the Jews. And there's people patting him on the back as the donkeys are rolling. Or, or he's riding in on this donkey and it's this huge scene and there's millions of people out there and there's this excitement and there's this electricity and this energy. And yet a few days later, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify that man. When a few days before, when a few days before, they were yelling, Jesus, our Savior. You see, the crowds that day had an ex expectation of who their king was going to be. I mean, you say that again so you catch that. They had an expectation of who their king was going to be. The king in their eyes was going to shock the world and lead a revolt against Rome. That was the king they were expecting. The king in their eyes was going to set them up as world leaders and be, have a prominent place in history. That was their king. That's the king they were expecting. The king in their eyes was going to fulfill all that they had been waiting for. For 600 years, this was the king that they were waiting for. That was the problem. That was the problem that day. That is what led to Jesus ultimately being crucified is that this mob of people who were one day shouting Hosanna, blessed is he to the king of the Lord, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, king of Israel, then three days later is shouting crucify him. Here's my point this morning, is that Jesus is not interested in being the king we expect him to be. Write that down if you're taking notes. Jesus 
Jesus is not interested in being the king we expect him to be. Jesus isn't interested in being the king you want him to be or that I want him to be. Jesus is interested in being the king that God has placed him to be. Not what we think, but what God thinks. And you might say this morning, well, I would never in my life shout for Jesus to be crucified. I would never turn my back against Jesus. Never. Maybe not. However, when we follow Jesus for any other reason than him being Lord over our life, then that is exactly what we do. When we follow Jesus for anything other than him being Lord of our life, then that's exactly what we are doing. I have two points this morning, two quick points, and then we'll be done. And uh, we can't go to the restaurant. Then we'll be done and just go home. Uh, but uh, it, two points. Uh, the first point is Jesus is not Lord of our life to fulfill our desires. Jesus is not Lord of our life to fulfill our desires. You see, there begins to be this real problem when we follow Jesus for all the benefits that he can offer us. When we want to follow Jesus because of all the things that he can offer us, that's exactly what the crowds were doing 2,000 years ago. As they were electrified, Jesus is coming in, the next king of the Jews. He met all the requirements, and he was the Messiah. And they were excited, not for him, but they were excited about what Jesus could offer them. And that wasn't the king that Jesus was intended to be. This expected king that would wipe away all their problems. It's what they thought. When we follow Jesus for our own benefit, then we're not following Jesus at all. We're following the idea of who we want Jesus to be. You ever thought, you ever, have you ever heard that? I see that on social media sometimes. It really annoys me. They're like, you know, my Jesus, blah, 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 blah. You know, or my Jesus, this and this and that. There's only one Jesus, and there's only one reason for Jesus. Does that make sense? There's only one reason for Jesus to come, and that's to be Lord of our lives. And that's it. That's to be Lord over our lives, and it's not about the benefit package that he brings along with it. That should not be our motive, okay? That's not the way it works. So what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of your life? What does that mean exactly? Well, what it means is that your life is no longer yours. My life is no longer mine. Look at Galatians 2.20. This is Paul speaking. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So my life is no longer my life. All right? The, all the desires and the intentions that Julian Martinez had for his life going forward, once I surrendered to Jesus Christ, he becomes Lord over my life, and now my life reflects what he wants me to be, right? My life reflects what he wants me to be, because I promise you, if you knew me 20-something years ago, you would not have expected what you see right now. That's a change Jesus brought about because it wasn't where I thought I was headed. It's where he wanted me to go. And I'm not trying to prop myself up. All I'm saying is, is that when we make Jesus Lord of our life, he completely takes over and it's no longer what I want. Listen to that. It's no longer what we want, but it's what Jesus expects from us that we that it makes him lord of our life because we are crucified our old self is hanging on that cross and is dead and the new life comes up but that new life doesn't come up just to be a better life okay jesus didn't save you so you could be rich jesus didn't save you so you could be healthy jesus didn't save you for any other reason than to be lord over your life and for to commission you so that other people could surrender to him as well that is no longer being yourself. I'm not in charge anymore, but Jesus and everything he is and everything he wants me to be now becomes my focus. 
that's Jesus being Lord over my life. You see, there's this issue these days with preachers out there, and I, I'll call them out. There's preachers out there telling people to come to Jesus because of everything Jesus can offer them. Come to Jesus because of everything Jesus can offer you, right? Whether that be money, whether that be fame, whether that be health, whatever. Roses, candy, I don't care. You come to Jesus, and because of all these benefits you get with the package that come with them. See, when this is the case, as soon as Jesus stops meeting your expectations, it becomes really easy to dismiss who he is, right? Come to Jesus, and your life's going to be so much better, and it's going to look a certain way, and you're going to have no problems, and, and all this other promises they make you, you come to Jesus, and then the problems just keep on coming, and they just keep punching you in the face. The first year after we got saved, first couple years, it was a struggle. Let me tell you that. I had a really good business, and uh, we were, you know, trucking along and everything, and it seemed like the moment we got saved, things just started going downhill financially and in my life, and, and things got crazy fast. Well, Satan doesn't want you to prosper. Of course he doesn't. But there's no promises that anything's going to get better in your life just because you follow Jesus. Now, will you have purpose? And will you there be contentment? Absolutely. But if we sell this lie that Jesus can offer all these things, he can offer all these things if you just come to him. What about people in Syria that when they come to him and they, and they come out as Christians, they die? What good is it to them, those benefits? What good is the benefits to people in Iraq who come out as Christians and, and, and they have their whole family killed? Right? And so the moment we start saying or giving people these expectations of what Jesus can do, when those expectations are not met, we dismiss him. We dismiss him, and that's real easy to do. Listen, I had this uncle. Uh, his name was Albert. And uh, <clears throat> he, was a, he was just a funny guy. He was a big man, like tall, uh, big 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, like, he had the biggest hands I've ever seen in my life. Just a great guy. Uh, he died when I was about 9. Maybe he's 9, 10 years old. And um, my mother had been saved when I was about... I don't know, like a newborn. And we had been going to church and everything. And, uh, and, and my uncle, uh, Albert, he, he, was, he didn't live the best life, okay? He, he was a drug addict and alcoholic his, his entire life. And uh, he, he developed cirrhosis of the liver because of it. And, uh, and, and at one point he went to the doctor and the doctor said, man, you've, you've got six months to live, maybe. And about... Three months from his death, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And uh, it was pretty neat, you know. It was pretty neat because I remember uh, before, I was little, but I remember he had OD'd one time and we had to go over there and, you know, the ambulance came and it was a scary moment. But now this new Uncle Albert was very different when God saved him. He was a totally different person. And, and he had this disease that was eventually going to take him out. And my mother, my mother had been sold this bill of rights by these preachers that, you know, if you just ask God in faith, you know, he'll heal him. Because now he's saved. Now he's done what God has required him to do and, he, and, he'll, be, and he'll be okay. And so my mom starts praying and she starts praying really hard and nothing happened. And he eventually died. And you know what? God healed him completely once he got to heaven and he didn't have to worry about addiction no more and he didn't have to worry about any of this but because my mother had been sold this bill of rights that everything was going to be okay in the end because he accepted Jesus it made her resent who God was I called her this morning to make sure I could uh, publicly tell this story because she quit after that she quit I remember I was about 9-10 years old and uh you know, at that point in my life, I didn't like going to church. I had to get up early in the morning. I had to get all dressed up and, you know, whatever. And so she she stopped going. She turned against because she was mad at God, she told me later, that she, she had prayed and she had been told that God was going to do this thing. And he didn't do it. And it took her like 12 years 
12 years lost to come back and to realize that that's not the way it is. I got saved at about 18, 19 years old, and we started praying for my mother, Melissa, and I. And we kind of started, you know, talking to her and everything, and eventually she came back to the Lord. But do you see the problem there? Do you see the problem that when we, when we have a level of expectation and that we feel that Jesus needs to meet, then he's no longer Lord of our life because it's me, it becomes me that calls the shots. If we come to with these expectations of what Jesus can do, then it's me who's calling the shots and not Jesus. And that's not the way Jesus works. That, that turns me into Lord and not him into Lord. And so Jesus, Jesus wants to be Lord of our life, right? Jesus is not Lord of our life to fulfill our desires. Jesus will not have this. God did not send his only son to die on a cross so that we can order him around with our expectations in life. That's not the purpose for Jesus being king of our heart. You know, we, we have all these issues. Jesus, I need a better job. Jesus, I need a better marriage. Jesus, I need more free time. Jesus, I just want to be happy in life. Who's serving who? Who's serving who? Right Now, don't get me wrong. There are absolutely benefits that come with serving Jesus, right? When I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, yes, my marriage is going to get healthy, right? My contentment level is going to go up or better, okay? To, to mean it don't matter what you do in life, as long as you have the purpose for Jesus Christ, you're going to be content. And that only comes with the purpose he provides. But listen, when we come to Jesus with these expectations and this list that we need him to fulfill, then it's no longer him being Lord, it's us being Lord, right? The moment these benefits become our motive, Jesus is not our Lord, but he's our servant. And Jesus wants to be king of your heart. Not a servant that you can boss around. That's the expectation that these people had. As Jesus was coming through in these crowds and, and they could care less about their heart's condition toward God. They cared more about the physical part, the worldly ramifications of Jesus being king of Israel. The revolt against Israel. That's all they cared about. Point number two. Jesus is either king of our hearts or he's not king at all. Jesus is either king of your heart or he's not king at all. When I was in college, and you gotta remember, there's a caveat with that. I was like 30 years old when I went to college. And so when I would get into these theological debates, it was with like 19 year olds. Now I have nothing against 19 year olds. If you're 19, God, I wish I was 19. <laughs> if you're 19, that's fine. But, uh, but if you can imagine, there's these kids who kind of, they got it all figured out, right? And, the, and then there was this one guy, I remember we were talking about lordship salvation. And he said, no, no, that's not the way, that's, that's not the way Jesus wants you to come to him. Because, you know, we're all free, you know, and, and we're, we're not slaves. And I said, yeah, we are. That's exactly what we are. See, if Jesus is not Lord over your heart, then he's not Lord at all. There's, what good does it do you? Jesus wants to rule over you because he knows better. Because he knows better than we do, right? These people were anxiously waiting on this king that God was going to provide. However, the king that God sent desired to be king of their hearts or not king at all. Because you see, Jesus won't take 98%. Jesus will not take 99%. It's either 100% or nothing. You either give it all up or it's nothing. It's, it's a failed endeavor if you don't give it all up because he wants you to surrender. And as Jesus was entering Jerusalem and he's coming through on this donkey and there's all these crowds and he finally gets through there, he sees Jerusalem up on the hill and the Bible says that he wept. He was sad. Look at it in Luke 
chapter 19, verse 41 through 42. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You see, these people had the unique opportunity to surrender to Jesus and him to be king of their hearts and to be used by him for the mission that God had. Because they had missed the boat. Let me tell you that. They had missed the boat. We talk about it all the time. Israel was to be this beacon of light to lead the whole world to God. And they decided to go introspective with it and not give the world God. They decided to be selfish and take God for themselves and say, we're the chosen people. We're the ones. All the outside world can pretty much go to hell pretty much. And we're the ones. They were introspective church. If there is a warning ever in our life, don't do that. These four walls should not limit us to what we do for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It shouldn't matter what people look like. It shouldn't matter what people believe. It shouldn't matter their thought process because nobody's going to be fixed before they come to Jesus. And when we seclude ourselves and say, because we have Jesus and we have the right way of living, all these other immoral people need to find their way out of our circle, that's wrong. Jesus will weep over that every time. And he's, as he's coming into Jerusalem, he sees it. He sees it that the people, they don't understand. They don't understand that their Savior coming to be king of their heart is there and they're going to reject him, right? Three days later, they're going to be crying, crucify him. But instead, they choose to follow their own selfish desires and they want Jesus to be the king they want him to be. John 1, 10 and 11 says, It was in the world and the world created, uh, the world that was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. If Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. If Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Look at what Romans, 9, uh, Romans 10, 9 says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's this discussion out there, like I was having with this kid at college, that this confession is this prayer that you say. And that as long as you say this prayer right, then that makes Jesus Lord of your life. Well, see, that's not exactly the way it happened 2,000 years ago. In Paul's time, when you came out and confessed Jesus as Lord and not Caesar, that was a death penalty. When you came out and were baptized publicly, that was a death sentence on you and Jesus warned them. Right? He said, pick up your cross and, and, and die daily. But then he also said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kill me, they will kill you. And when, when Paul says, confess Jesus as Lord, it's not like today that I can say it as loud as I want and these speakers can go as far as they want and nobody's coming to arrest me. Nobody's coming to handcuff me and to take me to a dungeon and then later behead me. It's not going to happen. So there's no consequence, in other words, for me to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. But back in the day, in Paul's day, there were extreme consequences for getting out and yelling that in public. Because Christians were being, were being uh, tormented and they were being killed all over the world. And so when Paul says here, confess Jesus is Lord, make Jesus Lord of your life, it's pretty much him saying, you sign the death note. And go out there and proclaim it to everybody you know. No matter the consequence. No matter what happens. No matter if you get judged. No matter if you get killed even. You go out there and you confess that Jesus is Lord. And if you truly believe that with your heart. Then you will be saved. Listen. That looks a lot different today. That looks a lot different today. Our surrender has to be everything because Jesus won't have half and he won't have 98%. He, has it. he wants it all. You see, church, 
we have this unique opportunity that these people had over 2,000 years ago. We have that same opportunity today. We're all here together and we're all shouting and proclaiming Jesus as Passion Week is upon us and Easter Sunday we'll have more people attend here than we usually do on any other Sunday. It happens every year, right? Our, when we have church in here on Easter, it's packed. Every year. It, it doubles from the week before. What happens to the other 364 days of the year? What happens to the other 364 days of the year? Is Jesus Lord over your life those days as well? Because you see, that's the most important part. It's not that we come here. It's not that we gather in such large crowds. Heck, before this coronavirus thing, there are churches, I mean, pretty much preaching heresy, but they're, they're running 30,000, 40,000 in a weekend. People screaming at the top of their lungs that Jesus is Lord. How many of those people, if it came down to it, would yell crucify it? See, do we come here and expect Jesus to fulfill all of our needs and desires? Or do we gather together with the understanding that it's no longer us who live, but it's Jesus who is going to be king of our heart? Because that's the difference. If you've come here this morning and you've got this long list for Jesus to do and you feel like he's this genie in your Bible that when you rub on everything will become better, that's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You've been sold a bill of sales that you cannot cash out. But if you've come here this morning and you allow him to rule your life as he sees fit and are content with that, then we've got something to work with. Because you see, there's a mission out there, church. There's a mission that God wants us to fulfill. And as long as we're Lord over our own lives, we're not going to fulfill it. You know why? Because we're going to be too busy. Because we're not going to have enough money. Because we're not going to have enough time. Because we've got to focus on our career. Because we've got to focus on our family. Because we've got to focus on everything else. When we've become Lord of our life, everything else gets pushed out. It's real interesting. We see it a lot in mission trips. I've been on a lot of mission trips myself and everybody comes back changed for a few months at least. But then everything just goes back to normal. And so what's the difference this morning? What's gonna change? Are, are we ready to make Jesus Lord over every aspect of our life? Over everything we can? Because that's what's going to make him king of our heart. When we say, you know what, I'm going to die to self, but I'm going to live for him. I'm going to crucify myself. I'm going to hang that old life up and live for Jesus. And that means I surrender everything to him. That means he is king of all. That means he is king of my heart. And I no longer rule or he rules. I'm not Lord. He's Lord. I'll do what he wants me to do. And it's up to us to figure out what that means and how that looks. If you're listening this morning, maybe online or here in this parking lot, and you have not surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day. Maybe you're listening right now and you've been following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Today's the day to change that. Today's the day to change that. And we've been given the roadmap here. And we've been shown, we've been shown the sign that here are all these mobs of people shouting for King Jesus, but then the very next day, three days later, shouting for him to be crucified. Let's not be that, church. Let's not be that person that hasn't surrendered everything. You have the opportunity today to do what God wants to do in your heart. Don't reject him. Don't reject God's answer 
for your life, but embrace the opportunity that he's giving you this morning. Paul said in the Romans, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Listen, I, I don't want to lie to you. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be roses and rainbows. But God will give you purpose for your life and give you contentment in your life. And I'd much rather live a life that is content and maybe not as fabulous looking as the world and be with Jesus than to have everything else and not have him. Because the word says it's far better to uh, it's far better to uh, <laughs> sorry it is, it is far better to gain um, heaven than it is to gain the world. Right? Don't bet your life on this world and lose your soul, in other words. Because this world is over in an instant. It's over in an instant. And Jesus wants to change your life forever. He wants to change your life forever. And we're going to celebrate that. Friday and Sunday, we're going to celebrate the fact that as Jesus was coming in to Jerusalem, five days later, he's hanging on a cross and he dies. Three days after that, he's resurrected from the dead and he gives us the opportunity for new life. That's something to be excited about, church. And if you haven't taken that opportunity, don't wait. Don't wait. Because that's a dangerous game that you don't want to play. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come here and to worship you together, God. We thank you for the opportunity we have to proclaim your son Jesus to the whole entire world, Father. This message that people have died for, this message that people have come and have received and it has changed their lives for the better, mine included. We thank you for that this morning, God, and I pray for those who are listening this morning, God, as, as we wrap this up, Father, that that they would allow you to be king of their heart, God, and that they would allow you to rule over them and to be Lord of their life because that's you won't have it any other way. I pray that you would be with us throughout this week, God. Be with us as we go through this difficult time of quarantine and uh, as the world changes, Father. I pray that it would open our eyes and change it for your glory, God, that you would receive glory out of all this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.